Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the first in a series of six messages I've entitled the study, Testing, Testing, Discovering What God Already Knows About Us. And today we're going to talk about the nature of God's testing. But before we do, let's, uh, let's, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in Your presence. May Your Word be our rule. May Your Spirit be our teacher. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I think testing is a uh, is a pretty interesting subject for most of us. Uh, we uh, most of us don't care for tests. Uh, I guess some people like enjoy challenges, but uh, uh, when it comes to the testing that the Bible talks about, some of us are reluctant to go through some of that. Let's begin, and I. I going to be following your notes fairly closely so let's just begin with a uh, with a dictionary definition of what we mean by testing notice uh, dictionary.com defines it this way the means by which the presence quality or genuineness of anything is determined a particular process or method for trying or assessing and then the oxford dictionary offers a similar uh, definition, revealing a person's capabilities by putting them under strain, challenging. So it adds a little something here, the idea that a test puts us under strain. Now, now we know from uh, just from our school days that uh, the, the real purpose of a test is not to teach us something. The purpose of a test is to find out what we've learned and to find out if we can put into uh, practice uh, the things that we are supposed to have learned. Now, as far as a biblical definition of testing is concerned, it comes from the Greek word periasmos. That's the one that's most uh, commonly used in the New Testament. And it is not only translated test, but it's also translated by the word tempt, try, prove, and examine. So, all of those words are translated by the uh, by this by this same word. Um, and notice here the the importance of context determines a lot. I mean, when you when you talk about this word is translated test sometimes, and sometimes it's translated temptation, um, and sometimes it's translated examine. Um, in our English language, there's a there's a good bit of difference uh, among those among those three terms. So context uh, really means a lot in, in terms of understanding uh, this particular word. For example, uh, the, the words test and try and prove and examine uh, refer to a situation designed by God to reveal uh, a person's character or the genuineness of uh, someone's faith and to teach endurance that leads ultimately to spiritual maturity. Whereas the word tempt means a solicitation uh, from the evil one to... uh 
to uh, to do evil. Uh, in fact, we're going to see that uh, in the uh, in the book of Job when we look at a few passages in there in a, in a few moments. Uh, sometimes the word can can have both connotations, both a test that uh, it, it has come. It's a test as far as God is concerned because it's going to reveal our character. It's going to show how genuine the faith is that we profess. Uh, it will teach us how to uh, learn to persevere uh, under trial and ultimately the uh, leads to spiritual maturity. That is that we become more and more uh, in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas at the very same time the old enemy can get involved and what is a test as far as God is concerned becomes a temptation because there's something stirred up inside of us and it's a solicitation to respond wrongly to the test. Again, we'll see that from some, uh, some passages that we're going to look at here in just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> the conundrum, I guess, for many people is that if God is omniscient, that is, if He's all-knowing, and we know that He is, why does He test anyone since He already knows what the outcome is going to be? And I point you to that uh, passage in the right-hand column of your notes that's just above that um, double rule there. And uh, it's the passage from John chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And I read, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now this is the the context of this is the feeding of the five thousand. So Jesus asks Philip this question where are we gonna where are we gonna buy bread so that these people can eat? And notice um, what else Jesus uh, is thinking here at the same time that um, uh, John writes about. It said, He, Jesus, said this to test him, that is to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Now remember, a denarius was, uh, was one day's wages. And, uh, so this is, uh, this is, what, two thirds of a, a year's work. He said, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And then there was a, so he sort of flunks this test. Now remember, the, the things that have gone on before, and again, uh, context is, is so very important. Because uh, in, if you read about this same incident, uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is, is one of the miracles uh, that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. But if you look at it, in, for example, in Luke chapter 9, you discover this, that Jesus has been, uh, has been doing all kinds of miracles Himself. And just prior to this time of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Jesus has sent out His twelve. And He sent them out to preach. He sent them out to teach and to heal. And He told them when they... Uh, he said, don't take any provision at all. In other words, uh, I'm going to take care of you and uh, people, you know, you'll be staying in people homes and uh, and the Lord's going to provide for you and God did provide you know in fact they came back and they were all excited about it God uh, not only provided 
He empowered for He empowered them to do uh, cast out demons and to heal and to do a number of things. And it was an exciting time for all of this. Now, this happened just prior to this incident that we're reading about here. This this feeding of the five thousand. So, what is God doing? Uh, Jesus is testing these guys. In other words, he says, okay, now you've seen me perform the miracles. You've been performing miracles. Uh, now, here's, here's the test. And he says, Philip, where, where are we going to get bread to feed all of these people? Now remember, it was 5,000 guys. And in addition to that, there, there were many women and children also who were following. And... <clears throat> And in spite of the fact that Philip has seen Jesus perform miracles, and in spite of the fact that Philip himself has been empowered to perform miracles and has seen God provide for him and his 11 uh, fellow disciples... Uh, during the time they went out on their ministry. They didn't take money with them. They didn't take anything. The Lord just provided for everything they needed. And now, here He's tested and He says, Hey, uh, you know, maybe he, he maybe uh, Philip called old Judas over to one side. Remember, Judas was a treasurer, and they looked in the bag and said, "Well, you know, we got two hundred denarii." He said, "With this two hundred denarii, we we can There's no way we can feed all these people." And so he flunks the test. Just all the stuff that he has thinks he's been learning, it just never occurs to him to say, "Well, Lord." I don't know, but I do know that that you know how to deal with this situation. And we we see a similar thing in that same passage uh, from uh, Andrew. Notice it says, again in John chapter 6, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And if Andrew had just shut his mouth right there and said, say, hey, Here's this kid. He's got uh, he's got he's got five hush puppies and two fish, and you give them to Jesus, and Jesus can take what there is. Now Jesus can create things out of nothing, obviously, but Jesus can take things that we already have and can multiply them tremendously. But Andrew didn't put the period in his sentence right there. He says, "There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish." But what are they for so many? Again, he's missing out on the fact that he's seen Jesus do all these miracles and he's been involved in the miracle working uh, part of the ministry himself. He's also uh, seen God's great provision, how the Lord always has provided. And yet here he says, but what is this among so many? So, God is omniscient. God knows. God never uh, gives us a test to get information, to find out what we're going to do. Because God knows the end from the beginning. Uh, Notice again uh, uh, the passage just to the left of that in your notes from Psalm 139, and I've lifted out a a couple of verses. And Psalm 139 in the New International Version is just a wonderful, wonderful passage where he says in uh, verses 15 and 16, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. 
When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Again, God knows everything. So when God gives us a test, it's not to get information. It's not to find out if we've learned something. God already knows all of that stuff. So there must be another reason for uh, for all of that. Uh, and before we begin to look at the purposes of God's testing, let's just go back and look at some, again, some illustrations of the way some of these words are used, like test and examine and tempt. Uh, and I put this in the right-hand column of your notes. Notice the passage from James chapter 1, and we're going to be referring to James 1 every one of these sessions that we have together as we talk about testing. It's This is probably the preeminent um passage on uh, on God's testing. Notice what it says, uh, James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." Now that sounds like just what we do. We uh, Notice it doesn't say, if, "...if you meet trials of various kinds." It says, "...when you meet them." So it is inevitable that trials and tests are going to come. He says the attitude that we ought to have when they come is to count it all joy. You remember Jesus, uh, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, but is now set down at the right hand of God. We read in uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now what is steadfastness? That's perseverance. My my sweet old mom used to call that stick-to-itiveness. You hang in there. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Now the idea in perfect and complete is the idea of maturity. Uh, and he goes on to say that you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, that is mature in your faith, but also complete. Um, and I think the idea of completeness here has to do with the fact that as we are under trial, that we need to recognize that Christ has the finished work of Christ on the cross is 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 all that we need to look to, look to Christ and to His finished work, realizing that He has made perfect provision for us. And we're going to look at this uh, and some of the things that Paul has to say about uh, about this uh, more in just a minute. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... When the test is all over, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, notice what else James says in that same passage. He uses that he uses the same word, but he uses a, it's in a different context, and it has to do with the idea of temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, that is, now remember, a test is is a challenge. A test is to reveal things to us, to test the genuineness of our faith. I profess that I have faith in Christ. I profess that He is really in the final analysis all that I need. And I tell people that. And God 
says, all right, let's, let's check out and see if you really believe that. And then some tests come into my life and I discover that there's some, uh, there's some inadequacies and instead of leaning on the cross of Christ, leaning on the finished work of Christ, then I start trying to figure out how I can do it all myself, how I can overcome these things myself. That way it's become a temptation because it's a solicitation for me to try to take care of it myself rather than trusting in the Lord Jesus. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil. God is righteous. You can't tempt God with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. He doesn't solicit us to do evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, again, these are just some illustrations of the way that, uh, that these, this terminology is, is used. Paul even goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Notice, and then he says, test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Uh, unless, of course, you fail the test. Examine yourself. How do you examine yourself? Well, one of the things we're going to be talking about over these next weeks, we're going to look at uh, three different biblical characters. We're going to look at one of them for two weeks, and then um, look at a couple of the other two for a, a, a session each, and then we'll kind of pull it all together at the end. But how is it that we examine ourselves? Well, the way we do that is through the scriptures. We read the scriptures. What is it that scriptures say uh, about me? What is it that they say about God? What is it that they they say about the act of faith that I should be exhibiting toward God? And what about uh, what is it that uh, that the, do I sense that the Spirit of God is working in my life? You know, one of the uh, one of the evidences that we are born again, as it says in, in the book of Romans chapter 8, it says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's one of the subjective uh, aspects of, uh, of assurance of salvation. But then he goes on, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, how do you test yourself? You say, okay, well, I know I'm supposed to look in the Bible, and I know I'm supposed to depend upon the Spirit of God and ask the Spirit of God to show me what it is in my life. What 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 is it that God wants to change? Where is it that I think I'm doing okay, but I'm really not? And because I'm not, God is faithful and is going to show me that because He wants to make me more and more into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how do I test myself? Well, if you read First John, you find that John gives three objective criteria for testing. First of all, it has to do with my beliefs. What do I believe about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I believe that Jesus is God who has come in human flesh, that the, that the person seated at the right hand of God the Father is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I believe that 
that his work on the cross uh, took care of my sins? Do I believe that his perfect obedience, that is his, his, the, his active obedience in keeping the law perfectly, is, is what God has imputed to me through faith in Christ? Is, is that what I believe? Secondly, what is the tenor of my obedience to Christ? Is the tenor of my life generally one of obedience? Not, not am I obeying perfectly. I'll never be able to do that in this life. But is the tenor of my obedience uh, uh, one of at least two steps forward for every one step that I take, uh, take backwards? And then thirdly, is my concern, the, the third test of that, first John, that John provides in 1 John is my concern and my care for other people and in particular, my fellow believers in Christ. Do I just give that lip service or uh, and, and say I'm concerned or do I really care for them and do what I can to help people out in situations like that? Um, and again, sometimes we see that these, this, these two terms, test and tempt, are used together. I think one of the best illustrations of that is in the life of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice, it, God the Father was testing him, but it was the it was it was at the end of that that forty days where Jesus had not eaten anything at all, and uh, his body would have been very weak at the time. And here's a time when the old enemy comes along and says, "All right, let's 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 just see what's going on," and he begins to tempt him to do things on his own and to uh, take care of himself rather than depending upon the uh, depending on the father to take care of him um, again paul even writes in 1 corinthians 10:13 no temptation has seized you that's an interesting word seize it means like to grab from behind and that's usually the way temptations come along you know, the, the, the test will begin in our lives and the next thing we know, all of a sudden, we're, we realize that, boy, this, this, this thing has taken a turn and now I'm, being, I'm actually being tempted to do things that, that I shouldn't be doing and I realize that the old enemy's getting in there and he's trying to, he's trying to uh, do some things that, uh, get me to do some things that I don't need to be doing. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out. Now that's what we're always looking for. We're looking for the way out so that you can stand up under it. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. He's going to provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God controls the thermostat. It never gets hotter than God intends for it to get. And the way out is the way of holiness. The way out is the way of trusting in God. And as we trust in God, uh, He developed we, our steadfastness and the faith is developed. Our sense of, yes, I really am a true believer in Christ. And, uh, and through all of this, is, God is showing me that I really do belong to Him. The Spirit of God is, is witnessing marvelously that I, that I am a child of God. And, and then there are those moments when we still fail. 
and those are the things that we're going to be talking about. In fact, we're going to we're going to look at uh, something here in just a minute that's related to that. Uh, let's look for a moment at the purposes of God's testing. Uh, first of all, uh, it's to reveal the genuineness of the faith that we profess. But it's to reveal it to whom? Never, ever, ever to God. Because God is the one who gives us faith. God is the one who is omniscient. Nothing is hidden. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4, verse 13. And God is sovereign. I am God, uh, the Isaiah wrote, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. God knows how it's going to turn out. So the truth is, is if. It, Part of God's purpose in testing is to reveal the genuineness of our faith, but not to find out for Himself how genuine it is. He already knows that, but to reveal it to someone else, and that includes us. Uh, now, there are, some, there are some difficulties that we sometimes run into, that, that, some things that make us think, well, maybe, maybe God didn't re- really know here. Like, uh, well, well, i tell you what, we'll look at that... Uh, uh, in here in just a moment, uh, if if you think about uh, Acts chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 18 and verse and chapter 22 are I think are good illustrations. We'll look at that for a minute. Uh, one of the things that I wrote in your in your notes is uh, is the thing about accommodative language in the Bible. Um, that is what, and what we're talking about here is what is the extent of God's knowledge. Uh, that is, we're talking about His um, His uh, omniscience versus test results. In seeking to understand God's purposes in testing, uh, we find ourselves, as I mentioned, in an immediate dilemma because the Bible clearly teaches that God is omniscient; He knows everything. Um, for example, that passage from Psalm 139 that I read just a few minutes ago and the one from Isaiah 46 and there's another one 2 Corinthians chapter I'm sorry 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 says but we ought always to thank God for you brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth so if God chose us to be saved he knows the validity uh, of uh, of the faith that we profess, so God is not looking for information, and yet it says there's uh, well the truth is that there's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows the end from the beginning. God is never surprised by anything that happens. God is never surprised by uh, any of the actions of any of His creatures, and yet there are some passages in the Bible that seem to indicate otherwise. And I emphasize the word seem. They seem to indicate otherwise. Um, Again, the passage from Genesis chapter 18. The context is when... uh, Lot is in the city of Sodom, and the Lord comes down with two of His angels, and they uh, they have lunch with uh, with Abraham there in his tent, 
and there's an interesting conversation that, that goes on there. And then in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I'll go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that's reached me. And if not, I'll know. Now that makes it sound like God didn't know. And He's coming down to check it out and and see what's going on. Uh, also, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Does that mean God didn't know whether they were going to follow His instructions or not? We'll talk about that. In Judges chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them, that is, I will use those nations to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. I'm going to leave these nations around, these hostile nations, because I'm going to find out, is what it sounds like it's saying, I'm going to find out if they'll do what they're supposed to do. And then Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, and we will look at this one, um, we'll look at this story about King Hezekiah, uh, that will be our, our fifth, yeah, our fifth uh, study in this series. But notice this passage, verse 31 of chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask King Hezekiah about the miraculous sign that occurred in the land, this was when the, the shadows went back. And boy, they, you, know, you know how those Babylonians were. They got, they'd get all excited. I mean, that's where the Magi came from. We get our word magic from oh, the word Magi. When they were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask King Hezekiah about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Sounds like God didn't know what was in his heart. So he said, well, okay, well I'm going to back off and I'm just going to see what it is that, uh, that King Hezekiah does. So, the question is, is God omniscient or isn't He? Does He know or does God have to wait on test results in order to know? Um, years ago, a, a popular television evangelist posed his solution to the dilemma by saying, well, there are just some things God chooses not to know. <laughs> now, which is a silly thing to say. He never explained why he thought God would choose not to know something. I mean, even logic, even sweet reason teaches that X cannot be non-X at the same time. Is God omniscient or is He not? And so we've got these two sets of passages to look at, and so how do we, how do we make sense out of all of this? Well, over the centuries... Theologians have divided God's attributes into two major categories, those that are communicable and the non-communicable. The communicable attributes include qualities like love and justice and creativity. Our love that 
we express toward one another that a man expresses toward his wife or that parents express toward their children. Our love may not be as pure as God's love, but we do know something of God's love because that is, that's something that we, at least on one level, understand. Our justice may not be as perfect as God's justice, but when we go for jury duty or we go to sit in on a courtroom scene or we watch Perry, old reruns of Perry Mason or whatever, there's a sense that we understand something of justice. Now, obviously, on our earth, there is no such thing as a perfect justice but there is perfect justice with God and so from that standpoint we can understand something about that uh, although we don't understand it completely and in terms of creativity uh, our creativity may be uh, well in fact is limited to making things out of other things that already exist whereas God's creativity is to just speak and things come to being, let there be light. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. These are qualities... These are qualities of a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. These are things that uh, that reflect something of God. Those kinds of things. Those are those are communicable attributes. But then there are other attributes. Um, that we call non-communicable because we don't share in those whatsoever. None of us are omnipotent. None of us are all-powerful. Neither are we omnipresent. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to be omnipresent, being everywhere at once, but, but none of us are that, and none of us are immutable. That is, we, ch- we change over time. God never does. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, these qualities, along with omniscience, are found in God alone. And if you think about it, I mean, how would, how would we describe the colors of a rainbow or a sunset to a mole? How would we describe the music of Beethoven or the Beach Boys to a snake? Now, I don't know why you'd want to describe it to a snake, but the point is, is that neither of them, neither the mole nor the snake, speak the same language that we do, and neither of them have the... the capacity in that particular sense that we do to understand our explanation if we could communicate with them. In other words, the the mole has very, very poor vision and as science tells us they only see in terms of black and white and shades of gray. So how do you explain color to a mole? And uh, snakes don't have ears. Now they feel vibrations. But how is it that you explain the intricacies of Beethoven and Mozart and the delights of the Beach Boys and the delights of old country singers? How, 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 do, you ex, how do you express that to someone who doesn't have, to a, to a being that does not have ears and only feels vibrations? See, we, 
if we were going to be able to communicate those things to a mole or to a snake, we would have to communicate them on a, on a level that they understand. And that's the way it is with God. If the Creator decides to communicate with His creatures, He does so at, uh, at the creature's level simply because of our limitations. That's the reason for the use of uh, what we sometimes call accommodative language in the Bible. Accommodative language is, is nothing more than God's use of language so as to communicate on a level that you and I can understand. Sometimes it's in the form of anthropomorphisms. Now don't, don't faint. That, now that is a $6 word, an anthropomorphism. It comes from the word anthropos, which means man, and morphe, uh, from which we get our word metamorphosis, which, which means to uh, a, a, a form, and a metamorphosis is a change in form. But uh, sometimes God uses terminology that we call anthropomorphisms, words like the Lord's hand, and the finger of God, and the eyes of the Lord. Because the Bible clearly teaches that God is a spirit. That God is spirit. He is not physical. Remember, Jesus talked about that to the woman, with the woman at the uh, at the well in John chapter four. God is spirit, and because the, remember they were having that discussion. Well, she she said to Jesus, she said, "Well, you Jews say you got to worship in Jerusalem, and and we Samaritans say no, we worship on Mount Gerizim." And Jesus said, "Hey." Geography is not the big deal. What God wants and what He's looking for is, is for, for people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God's not composed of physical matter. He's not limited to time and space as, uh, as, as we are in this part of His creation. So how is it that you and I can comprehend an infinite being who has all knowledge? And so the Bible uses these, these, this accommodative language. For example, 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Well, that helps us. That, that verse, although as far as we know, a, a, a spirit does not have physical eyes like you and I have physical eyes, but what does that, what does that imagery do for us? What it does is it helps us to readily understand that God sees everything and that He knows everything and He is committed to His people. Um, same way in, in Isaiah 59.1 where it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear. Now again, God is spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't have a physical arm. He doesn't have physical ears. But it's, a reference, but it's a reference to His awareness of our situation. It's a reference to His ability to act on our behalf. And God accommodates our limited understanding by using images that we can understand. That's what that's all about. And so that helps us, I think, in these situations 
where we talk about the extent of what God knows. What what is the extent of what God knows? Well, that's an easy question. He knows everything. And any verses or any passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that God's knowledge is limited have to be weighed against the overwhelming biblical evidence that God is indeed omniscient, that He does know everything. When God told Abraham that He had come down to see if things in Sodom were as bad as the reports He had received... Remember that passage we read from Genesis 18? What God was doing was He was expressing in terms that Abraham could understand that He was aware of the wickedness that was going on in Sodom and those cities of the plain and that He was not indifferent to it at all. Recall also from that passage that God did not Himself actually go down to Sodom. Remember He said, I'm going to come down here and check it out? God didn't go to Sodom. He sent the two angels who were with Him. And when they went, when they arrived in Sodom, it was not a fact-finding mission for them. They were there for one reason. And that was to rescue Abraham's nephew, Lot, and Mrs. Lot and and the and the girls, and then and only then would God destroy Sodom and the other cities in the Jordan Valley. Um, and when you think about it, the the I think the greatest test that Abraham ever faced was the one from uh, Genesis chapter twenty-two, because remember God commanded uh, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac at Mount Moriah, and so very faithfully and willingly willingly and unhesitatingly uh, Abraham and Isaac made their way three day journey over to Mount Moriah they ascended the mountain and Abraham was about to make a fatal cut in that boy's throat and as he was ready to plunge the knife in and, and, and cut the boy's throat God stopped him and it says in Genesis 22 but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven Abraham Abraham Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, think about that passage. Does that mean that God was uncertain if Abraham would really do it? Did this test prove something to God? Did God learn something from from this test? Of course not. It would be inconsistent with Scripture and the character of God to think that God was unaware of the depth of Abraham's commitment to Him. If you don't get anything else out of this first session, remember this. God does not learn. God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. This statement by the angel of the Lord was really an affirmation to Abraham that indeed God did know the patriarch's unwavering devotion to him. You and I must be careful never to delude ourselves by thinking somehow that God is seeking information in His interaction with us. When God asked Adam, Where are you? He wasn't talking about GPS coordinates. He was revealing to Adam the truth that Adam was lost. When God asked him, did you eat the fruit of that tree that I told you not to eat it? God wasn't looking for information. God was putting His finger on the sin of Adam. When God said, Cain, where is your brother? Was, was God not aware 
of where Abel was, that Abel was dead and his blood had drenched the earth? Of course not. You see, the, the Scriptures really very clearly reveal the Creator's gracious willingness to, to use accommodative language because of our limitations as creatures, fallen creatures, sinners. But God's greatest act of accommodation, of course, is seen in the Incarnation because the second person of the Godhead who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, the Father's agent in creation, willingly took upon Himself the limitations of the creature in order to redeem all of God's people from their sins. <clears throat> Having said all of that, let's look at a uh, just... Now, some of you thought we wouldn't get back to it, but when we look at the purposes of God's testing, you said the first one is to reveal the genuineness of the faith we profess, but not to reveal it to God, because God knows. And I think we've made a, we've made a good case for the fact that God is omniscient, and that when God tests us, He's not looking for information. Well then, who is it that, uh, who is it to whom God reveals the genuineness of our professed faith? Well, for one thing, it's to angelic beings. Uh, notice in the passage there in your notes from Ephesians chapter three verses eight through ten, where Paul writes, "This grace was given to uh, given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ." His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And Peter writes in First uh, Peter chapter one, it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you that is the gospel through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and then notice and I've underlined it in your notes things into which angels long to look and I think the the the, the clearest to me about the uh, revealing the genuineness of our faith to angelic beings uh, in order that He, he God, would be glorified <clears throat> is, the, uh, is the story of, of Job. You look at Job chapters 1 and 2. We're, that's the part we're the most familiar with. Job chapter 1. Uh, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil? And what does the old devil do? The devil says, well, i tell you what, he'll cuss you to your face. If uh, You just got him hedged in. You start taking stuff away from him, and he'll cuss you to your face. And the Lord, notice what the Lord does. He says in verse 12, the Lord of Job 1, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. What One of the things I said a minute ago, a few minutes ago, was remember, whose hand is on the thermostat? God's. It never gets hotter than God intends for it to get. And God sets the limitations here. The old devil says, Alright, we'll have a contest. You say that he's... You, you're bragging on Job and what an upright and blameless man he is. I'll show you what kind of upright, blameless guy he is. I, you just let me get my hands on him. And God says, all right, I'll tell you what. Uh, you, can, uh, you can touch the stuff that he has, but you cannot touch him. 
And remember, that's exactly what happened. I mean, his kids were killed in a tornado, some kind of bad windstorm, lost all his livestock. It just—it was just awful. And it's but at the end of chapter one, it says, "But in none of this did God uh, did Job charge God recklessly, and he did not." he, he didn't sin in any way. And in Job chapter 2, the story continues. It says uh, in, in verse 3 of Job 2, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? See, there are those two words again. Who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There's no reason that these things were happening to him other than the fact that I'm showing you, devil, that my people will stand up under the test. And that's when the old devil says, yeah, skin for skin. You, you let me touch him and he'll cuss you. And the Lord, notice what the Lord agrees to do. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. You cannot take his life. And of course, that's when uh, that's when things really got bad. And you find old uh, Job out there at the ash heap, scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. And Mrs. Job uh, is still alive, and she comes along. She says, "Look, look, honey, why don't you just cuss God and die?" And then Job's friends show up. And best thing, best thing Job's friends did for the first week, the first seven days, they just sat there with Job and didn't say anything. They just said. They apparently said to themselves, we're here with you. So what was God doing? God was revealing some things to the old wicked one. But also the main purpose when God reveals the genuineness of faith is to reveal it to us. Notice the passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. Though now for a little while you have you may have had you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the main purpose as far as we are concerned is to show us the genuineness of the faith we profess. We say, you know, I really am trusting in Jesus. And so the tests come along and we discover, am I really trusting Christ as much as I think that I am? And of course the other the other reason, the other main reason for the test is the thing that we talked about earlier, and that is to bring the true believer to spiritual maturity. And and if you look in again at Job, and I put this in your notes, the last part of the book of Job, uh well look at Job chapter forty. It says, Then the Lord said to Job this is after all of this is, is past. And Job has just been having argument after argument with his, uh, with his so-called friends. And, and one of the things, and Job has gotten real testy with God. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I want God to explain to me why all this is happening. Now, God had said twice he's, a ju- he's an upright man. He's a man of integrity. Does that mean that God was wrong about him? Not at all. Has, has, has God learned something about Job that he didn't know before? Not at all. Who's learned? I'll tell you who learned, and that's Job. Because he became aware 
of his deficiency. He became aware of his sin. The old enemy tempted him to to begin to lash out at his friends and to lash out particularly at God. And unfortunately, Job did do just exactly that. But the whole purpose as far as God was concerned for the test for Job was to show Job a deficiency in his life. You say, well, wait a minute now. It said over there in chapter 1 and 2 that Job was a blameless man. Well, that doesn't mean he was sinlessly perfect. Remember, Paul said that about himself uh, before he came to new Christ, before he came to know Christ. Uh, I think it's in the book of Philippians where he said uh, he was a Pharisee and as far as the law was concerned, he was blameless. In other words, he he wasn't claiming to be sinless. Say, so, yeah, oh yeah, I, I would blow it. I would sin, but I knew exactly the right sacrifice to present. So I was I was always seeking to do exactly what the what the law called me called upon me to do, and that's that's this situation with uh, with Job. Now look at Job chapter forty. Then the Lord said to Job, "Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic." But do you have the answers? Job replied to the Lord, I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I've nothing more to say. Well, let me tell you. Now, that that's repentance. But that's God didn't stop there. We're not going to tell God what the rules of the game are. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you're right? You see, there was the problem. The Job, Job was blameless and upright. God said he was. But Job had gotten the wrong end of that stick. And apparently it had become sort of a pride thing with him. Because remember in, in, his, in the course of talking with all of these, uh, with his four friends, over and over, he'd say, you know, there, was a, there used to be when I would walk in the room, the young men would get up. They don't do that anymore. They sneer at me. And you can just you can just you can just sense all the things that are going on in Job's life at that point. And Job forty two says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, Lord, you asked, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said Listen and I'll speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I've seen with my eyes. What is it that he's seen? He's seen something of the true nature of God, but even more than that, he has seen himself in the in the light of the nature of God, and his response is that of repentance and sorrow. And in verse 10 of chapter 42, it says, When Job prayed for his friends, that was his frustrating friends. That was his clueless friends. That was the friends about whom God said to them, said, you don't know what, nothing that you've said was right about me. 
Job is my man. And he's the one who said the right things about me. Even though Job was frustrated and cried out to God in anger, it says when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Although He gave him the same number of kids, So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than the beginning. One of the things it says uh, near the end of James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creation. In this context of testing and trials and the fact that temptations come, but God's not the author of the temptation, it's just that the old wicked one gets in the middle of it and then we are solicited to respond in an evil way. He says, even testing, even testing can be considered as a gift from God. Because God's whole purpose in testing us is to show us the deficiencies in our lives so that we will repent and so that we will become more and more like the image of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Our time has really run short. Uh, Let's just look at the conclusion. Uh, A lot of these things we're going to be talking about in detail and they'll be fleshed out in these individuals that we look at over the next few weeks. First of all, all who profess faith in Christ Jesus should expect to be tested. It's just when you fall into trials. As the master teacher, God always adequately prepares the believer for the test. Just like He prepared Philip and Andrew and all of the disciples and then the test came along, how are we going to feed these 5,000 people? They flunked the test. God's purpose in testing never is to learn what the believer knows or how the believer will respond. Why? Because God already knows that. He's omniscient. Rather, God's purpose is to reveal to us, to the believer, what is truly in our hearts. Why? In order to motivate us to pursue greater conformity to Christ. Testing is not a punishment from God and it never should be construed as such. And knowing all of this, you and I should willingly submit to God's testing with a joyful attitude. That doesn't doesn't mean we put a smirk on our face and say, oh, happy day, here it is again. But it does mean that we can be joyful just as Jesus was joyful. I mean, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross despising the shame we, where our focus is not so much on the present as it is on the future what is God doing in my life now and the reason He's doing it is because of what He's going to make me into over time God's testing very often upsets us first of all because we don't have any idea as to what God is doing in our lives why, he, or, or why He's doing it or how long it's going to last we're going to see that next year. I'm sorry, next session when we uh, when we look at uh, Joseph, the the prisoner. Uh, God's testing upsets us because we would rather pre- we we prefer our comfort more so than improving our character. We prefer to live for the present 
rather than for the future. We forget that we are pilgrims in a fallen world. And, I, and another reason that, we, that God's testing upsets us is because we're afraid we'll, we'll fail the test. And sometimes that, that's because we think we're going to disappoint God. Well, let me tell you, to disappoint God, you've got to do something that He doesn't expect. So that's not a good reason. God, again, knows the end from the beginning. But I think a lot of times we're afraid we're going to fail the test because it's going to reveal the truth to us that I'm not really as far along as I think that I am. It's going to reveal the truth to other people around me, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who are going to see that, yeah, I believe old Bradshaw is a believer, but boy, he's he's still got some problems. And that, that frightens us to think that we may be there. But because of these... L- lingering sinful tendencies that you and I have, these attitudes that we have, God's testing often becomes an occasion for temptation by the enemy of our souls who seeks to diminish the glory of God. And we, and we, we, we saw that in, in Job. The true believer in Christ does not have to yield to the pressures of the enemy. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. See, there's, there's arrogance. There's pride. Take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Not just to get out of it, but you're going to endure it. You're going to stay under it. And in staying under it, it's going to mature us. And while it's true that you and I as believers in Christ may flunk a test, just like Job did, like Simon Peter did, like Philip did, like Andrew did, it is also equally true that God will not allow us to flunk the course. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am sure of this, Paul wrote in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then finally, those whose faith in Christ is genuine will desire transformation. See, we want to be made in the image of the Lord Jesus. We just don't like the process. We don't want to go through the meat grinder. But those whose faith in Christ is genuine will desire transformation that is continuing to grow in the character qualities of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The psalmist wrote, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Why? See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to be like my Savior. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you fail the test of genuine faith. Examine ourselves in the light of God's Word under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Test ourselves. What do I believe? Do I believe the truth about who Jesus is and what His work accomplished? Is the tenor of my life generally one of obedience to Christ? Do I have not only concern for my brothers and sisters who are hurting, but do I actually care for them? Test yourselves. What's the answer to those questions? Let's pray. 
Father, thank You for Your kindness and mercy. Thank You that You are the omniscient God. Thank You that You are never surprised by anything that we do because You know the end from the beginning. And yet You accommodate Yourself to us because of our limitations and You speak to us in ways that we understand. The greatest of those ways was when You, the Creator of the universe, took on our human flesh and came and lived among us. And our Lord Jesus lived that perfect life so that that righteousness achieved through perfect obedience might one day be imputed to us and that the sin in our lives might be borne away by His work on the cross. Thank you. Thank you for that mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.